Good evening. It's good to see you to worship the Lord this evening. Last week we finished up our study through the book of Ecclesiastes together, so tonight we continue our journey through the Old Testament and our next uh, book in front of us, which is the Song of Solomon. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles to the Song of Solomon, again, we now come to what really would be considered the final of the poetic books in the Old Testament, beginning with Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and now Song of Solomon, this final Hebrew book of poetry that we have in the the library of the 66 books of God's Word. And then when we turn the corner there, we'll begin looking at the prophetic books going forward. And understand, as we look at Hebrew poetry, obviously we've been doing such for a considerable amount of time now on Wednesday evenings, but just good to remember that there's a difference between uh, what we oftentimes perhaps perceive or think of as poetry in our poetry, English poetry, we we think of uh, rhyming and meter in poetry, where Hebrew poems weren't like that. It was more of sort of coupling together ideas. Remember in the book of Proverbs, you can see that real clearly there where an idea would be stated, <clears throat> and then the same idea would be stated again for reinforcement oftentimes just in a little bit different way or maybe using some different words or different terms or sometimes it would be contrasting ideas and the idea was to communicate a thought uh, rather than necessarily trying to have you know beautiful rhythm or rhyming words and so forth and you know in some ways uh, I'm really thankful that the Holy Spirit gave to us Hebrew poetry because that actually translates uh, when you are basically utilizing Hebrew poetry, which just has reinforcement of thoughts to communicate an idea, that translates very well, really, through any language. But again, if you try and translate from the English, roses are red, violets are blue, uh, I love Trish, how about you? Uh, that doesn't necessarily, to another language, it may not translate and rhyme and have the same idea there. So how wonderful God wanting us to have all of the knowledge and understanding possible he selected to give to us Hebrew poetry uh, from the Hebrew language so that we can glean the absolute most from it. Now, as we come to the Song of Solomon, if you read ahead, you have a basic idea of some of what we'll be looking at together. You notice that the Song of Solomon is basically a poetic song, and you notice verse 1 even says that it's the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Now, again, we're told in 1 Kings that Solomon recorded not only thousands of proverbs, but over a thousand songs. So what this is conveying here, the Song of Songs, this is almost Solomon by the direction of the Holy Spirit saying, this was my hit song. Uh, of all the songs that I wrote, and interestingly enough, we don't have any of the other songs. Of all the thousand literal songs that King Solomon wrote and recorded by the wisdom of God's Spirit that was given to him, the one quote-unquote song that makes it into the Scripture, to the canon of God's Word, is this particular Song of Solomon, and he sees it as sort of the peak or the, the highest or most important, the best of all of his songs. He calls it the Song of Songs, which is Solomon. So, of course, we know the writer, the human writer anyway, is King Solomon here, and it's basically a poetic song that we'll see that celebrates romantic marital love. 
Uh, and it is basically the Holy Spirit describing romantic marital love between a man and a woman, and it portrays in very poetic language, and sometimes that's where the difficulty is. But again, uh, though we won't move through it in the depth that you could, I, I certainly highly, highly encourage you, particularly if you're a married person, um, there are some really great commentaries out there. There are entire books that were written just to really help expound and glean from some of the Hebrew poetry and the terms and phrases that are used in here. Some of the real wonderful things that were being conveyed that, again, sometimes get lost in our you know, English vernacular and trying to understand words because this is basically, it's, it's a manual from God's Holy Spirit showing all the beauty and the wonder and the passion and the intimacy that's experienced in romantic marital love that God's intended and given as a gift from the Garden of Eden between a male and a female in a monogamous lifelong marital relationship and a covenant commitment. And again, it, it beautifully portrays that for us here. There are those that because maybe they, I don't know, just feel a little bashful and red-faced, want to take the Song of Solomon, and some only want to see it completely allegorical, which means that all they want to do is see it only as a description of God's love, where God's the husband and we're the wife. And, and, and look, let me just say, I do believe in a secondary sense that that is a part of what the Song of Solomon is about, uh, and we will try and draw attention to that. So it celebrates the romantic marital love between a man and a woman in all of its beauty and its passion and wonder and heat and the intensity, all of which God created for it to be enjoyed in. And again, we have to remember this relationship and romantic marital love is completely holy and wholesome from God's perspective. Whenever I'm doing marriage counseling or premarital counseling, I always try and remind couples that, listen, it's not until Genesis chapter 3 that sin entered into the world. When God created male and female and joined them together in marriage and told them to be naked and unashamed and to be fruitful and multiply, which implies sexual intimacy and the full expression of marital love, sin had no involvement in creation at that point in time. So there was nothing defiled about it, nothing dirty about it. God's not approved. Again, God created all of these things, the chemistry, the romance, the experience between a man and a woman. And God looked at all of that in Genesis 1 and 2 and said what? Like everything else, it is good. God saw it as a beautiful, wonderful thing that was to be enjoyed between a man and a woman to be the glue and the bond of their relationship when kept within those boundaries. So again, I take a very, as do many, you know, literal understanding of the Song of Solomon, and I do see in a secondary sense in it as well the portrayal of the love of God for his people in the sense that God being like a husband and we being like a wife. And again, we do see that pattern in Scripture. In the Old Testament, God on occasion refers to Israel as his wife, and he uses that picture and that analogy that God, like a loving husband, Again, he describes when Israel betrays him, like, like spiritual adultery happened and the pain of the heart that comes to God's heart when that happens, but the love that he has for us like a wife. And of course, we know from a New Testament perspective that numerous times in the, the New Testament scriptures, we see the indication that Jesus is like the bridegroom or the groom and that we as the church are called the bride of Christ. 
that we're like the wife of Jesus and that we're joined to him in a spiritual marital union. And we see that pictured again and again in the New Testament to better understand. Paul even says in Ephesians 5 that the relationship between a husband and a wife, he says, I speak regarding a mystery regarding Christ and the church, that the most fitting one of the most fitting, clear pictures on this earth for God to show the kind of loving, intimate, personal, deep bond and relationship that he wants between us and himself, Jesus and us as his church, is to look at a husband and a wife and to see that lifelong commitment of life partnership, doing everything cooperatively, sharing a life together, that that is one of these beautiful pictures on earth where Jesus says that is given as a gift, but it's also given as a clear expression to understand what the heart and desire of God is regarding relationship with him. So here we basically get a record of King Solomon, and I believe this was written myself personally. We don't have evidence to be certain, but I believe Song of Solomon, unlike Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, which seem to me to be written more in Solomon's latter years, uh, kind of reflecting back, sharing wisdom like an older man passing on. The Song of Solomon seems to be to be a record of Solomon, I believe, as a brand new young king, who it seems, as we read it together, goes out to observe his new kingdom that he inherited from his father and all of his workers in the various fields and the territories owned by the palace and the throne. And Solomon seems to set aside his royal robes and to go out like a commoner among the people to basically survey what was going on and while in his common robes, like a common man, almost like we call undercover boss, right? You ever see that show, Undercover Boss? That's kind of the idea. Solomon takes off his royal robes, and he goes out like a commoner under disguise so you don't recognize him as the king in all of his glory and so forth. And he sees and meets this country girl from Lebanon, and he falls in love with her, and he ends up marrying her and taking her to himself. Potentially, we don't know. Maybe this was the first Unfortunately, Solomon erred ultimately of many, 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 many wives. But I believe perhaps this was his first real genuine love experience where he in a proper way, in a right way, goes out and he falls in love as the king with this country girl from Lebanon. Again, can't you already see the beautiful picture there of Jesus setting aside his royal garments and his glory and his power and taking common robes and coming among us in this world, living like a man and, and being here, taking a bride to himself in his humility uh, and entering into that marital relationship. So we have basically here this true record of this romantic marital love from courtship, it seems through consummation and then an ongoing married life. So it's a beautiful love story of a king and a country girl who fall in love with one another and develop passion relationally. And again, this is God's spirit-inspired record of love between them that is pure, it's completely proper, but you'll see as we get into the later chapters, it also is very intensely passionate, and God has created such things and is not opposed to them if kept within the confines of a proper relationship and the boundaries of a marital relationship to find complete and total fulfillment. So again, I, I strongly encourage, uh, because this isn't a marital conference, when we get to the latter chapters, I'm going to keep it PG 
for the sake of the fact that I realize we're all not all married couples in here. Um, if I were teaching a marriage conference, I would certainly take a little bit deeper dive and a different approach to some of the verses that are there, but we'll, we'll try and find the balance for the sake of being a, a, a mixed group this, ever, you know, this evening and in our weeks ahead here. But again, I strongly encourage you as a married couple, if you are married, to do a deep dive and study the Song of Solomon together. I tell you, it will enhance your marriage. It will enhance your passion and understanding of intimacy and sexual expression in a way that may be very rewarding. So I just strongly encourage you. God wrote the manual. God knows what he's doing, and God's got some really great insight if we take those things to heart. Now, before we jump in, let me just say, I don't think it's possible to get an exact chronology of what Solomon's addressing here. That's where a little bit of the difficulty comes into play as far as the stages represented again of, again, the meeting and then the courtship and then where ultimately the marriage happens and then the consummation of, of the marital relationship and then the marital life going forward. It appears, and this is my best stab and the approach I'm going to take, it appears that the first few chapters from chapter 1 through chapter 3, about halfway to about verse 5, describes the courtship period. And I think chapter 3, verse 6, seems to give a pretty clear indication then that that is when the marriage culmination happens as you see Solomon coming from the wilderness with his entourage, and he seems like he's coming, you know, with all of his men to pick up his bride, which is, again, very common in Hebrew action of entering into marriage. So I'm going to take that approach. Now, that being said, you're going to find some phrases you're going to go, well, wait a minute, that sounds like, well, if this is just courtship, what's that phrase doing there? So uh, I can't be dogmatic, but uh, perhaps some of those phrases, I think, are more longing desires at times of, of the Shulamite gal looking forward with anticipation in the courtship and in her longing for her marriage days ahead uh, rather than literal things that are happening. And then once you get to the marital consummation, chapter 3, verse 6, then it's literally describing actual experiences between Solomon and between the Shulamite, uh, his beloved wife. So chapter 1, verse 1, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, the Shulamite. Now, again, that's always this, this gal, this Lebanon gal from the countryside. Again, she seems like that she worked among the, the, the shepherds in the countryside of Lebanon. She's the Shulamite. Uh, and so whenever we, we, we hear her speaking, that's one person. And then her beloved is always a reference to Solomon when she begins to address him. And then we periodically have a little chorus of what was often referred to as the daughters of Jerusalem. They'll chime in and kind of add a little bit of uh, chorus every once in a while. So it seems that she begins uh, the book here. And interestingly enough, there will be way more of her voice than his voice. Now, you can interpret that however you want in romantic love. But again, there it right is in the word of God. She speaks way more than he does. Verse 2. That's a passion tip, by the way. By the way, side note. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love, she says, is better than wine because of the fragrance of your good ointments. Your name is ointment poured forth. Therefore, the virgins love you. Draw me away. So 
she opens, and you can tell as she opens the, the record here of their love experience, that you can tell that she is longing to be able to have an experience of his love and his affection in her life. You can tell by her language here that she desires to have an experience of his love and his affection towards her. The first thing that comes out of her mouth is let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Again, if we think of what a kiss implies, a kiss is basically an expression of one's affection towards another person. So you can tell right out of the gate as she gets to know Solomon and they're beginning to some degree to establish relationship uh, that, that this isn't friend zone, that, that she right away recognizes in her chemistry and what's going on, I don't know if you just, you're going to be my brother. I've got a little bit different idea towards that. And there's this degree of obvious attraction that she expresses a longing to experience his love. And notice even her interest and longing toward him as it awakens, it's almost as if here she's kind of dreaming. Now, this isn't her saying, please kiss me. Notice she doesn't say to him directly, I want you to kiss me. That's not what she's saying. She's saying, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. This is her kind of pondering her thoughts and expressing her desires out loud. And what she's conveying is that she desires him in a romantic way and she desires his affection. She's longing for something more than just friendship with him. There is a clear romantic attraction. But notice, if you would, too, that she also desires, as the female in the relationship, that he would be the one that's the initiator as a male. You see what she says? Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Do you notice right out of the gate what she desires as a young lady, which is very beautiful and appropriate in proper pattern, she desires for him as the male to be the initiator. She says, I want him to initiate. I want him to guide. I don't want to be the one directing the relationship. Let him, she says, in the appropriate time, make advances towards me romantically. Verse 2, for your love, she says, is better than wine. So now she addresses directly her language poetically towards him. Your love is better than than wine. Now, again, wine speaks of that which is used and becomes intoxicating. And when you come under the influence of wine, right, what it does is it removes all of your, usually all of your inhibitions. As you come under the influence of wine, it has an effect upon you where it really begins to kind of, to some degree, take over aspects of your life. That's what happens when one begins to drink wine and comes under the influence of the substance of wine is it starts to kind of rule over a person. And so here she's describing the influence of his love towards her. And she says, I'm not only attracted to you, she says, the experience of your love towards me, notice she says, it's better than wine. She's saying your love is intoxicating. It literally rules over me. It, it changes me. It's making me turn into a totally different girl. <laughs> And this is the picture here. And this is exactly to some degree what happens when two people begin to experience love and chemistry romantically. Is it not true that in that whole kind of initial infatuation phase, it's almost like that love experience, it's intoxicating. 
They can't get enough of one another. And it's almost as if, like when someone's under the influence of wine and they're intoxicated and controlled by the wine, people become intoxicated and they become governed by the romantic relationship. And all they can think about is wanting to be with that person. And all they want to do is have experiences with that person and spend time with that person. And, and that love, that romantic love, and it's kind of infancy and all of the wonder of the early parts of it, it really is like that, where it starts to kind of just take over a person's life. It becomes better, she says, even than wine, because the fragrance of your good ointments. So notice, gentlemen, he smelt well. It's a good tip for you, gentlemen. Just, you know, it, it matters. doesn't matter to us, but if you want a gal, you might want to think about that. Your name is ointment poured forth. Now, again, notice here she's using poetic language, symbolically, your name. The name was always representative of someone's character. If someone had a good name, that meant that they were someone who had a good character, a good reputation. So notice, she's not just physically attracted to him. She says as well, your name, that is your character, who you are as a man, it's like precious ointment poured forth that gives off a pleasing fragrance. What she's saying is, I'm not just attracted to you physically. She's saying, I'm also very intrigued and attracted by your character. And your character is something that's like a pleasing fragrance and how beautiful to see that this isn't just physical attraction alone. That she sees something about him that is very appealing to her that goes beyond just physical appearance alone that it's his name, his character, who he is as a man that greatly mattered to her and deeply attracted to her. And she says, no wonder, therefore, the virgins, all the girls love you, not just because you wear good fragrances, but all the girls love you because you're such a good man. And there was something about who he was as a man that made him stand out by his character and made him very appealing to all of the virgins in Jerusalem at that time. And she saw that, and it mattered to her. And any young lady who's not married is wise to not only look for a physically attractive man, but also to find attraction in a good character, in someone who has qualities about their life as a man that are very valuable as, way, as well. And as she finds herself being drawn towards him, she ultimately says there, draw me away. In other words, I want to be with you. I want to spend time with you. I want to be alone together with you. Draw me away and, and, and let me spend time together with you. Now, as we look at her initial words to Solomon here as she's expressing her affection towards him, as I said, certainly we can see some clear images of how we might relate to the same regarding Jesus. As she says to him, your love is better than wine. Your love is intoxicating. Is it not true that Jesus' love is completely intoxicating? It is the absolute best love that we've ever experienced in our life. And when you come to experience the love of Jesus as your groom, is it not true? The love of Jesus, like wine, it almost controls you and it rules over your heart and it begins to affect your decisions and the way that you speak and the way that you act. And in the same way wine kind of governs and controls by its influence, it has a strong influence over people, the love of Jesus is better than wine, man. It's be I know many people who left wine because they fell in love with Jesus. And before that, they loved wine. <laughs> but then when they met Jesus, this love is better than wine, man. This is a better high. 
And they find the love of Jesus very gratifying in their experience with him in love relationship. She says as well of this man, Solomon, that his name, again, his character was very attractive. And again, is not Jesus' name and character very pleasant, like a healing ointment? The sweet name of Jesus, to know Jesus, to experience him and all of his character and his nature is one of the most pleasant healing things. It's like a healing ointment in our lives. Maybe we had lots of rotten relationships. Then you meet Jesus and you finally meet someone who in character is vastly different and very healing and satisfying in your experience relationally. In many ways, that's one of the greatest assets to help you in balance. Be careful that you don't get into wrong relationships with people because you're finding fulfillment in the pleasing relationship with Christ. And even as she says to Solomon, draw me away, you know, those words are very beautiful of the way that we really should relate to Jesus. That's how we should have a heart towards Jesus that our heart towards Jesus is that we would long for Jesus to draw us away. Lord, just draw me away. Get me away from the world. Lord, get me away from sin. Lord, get me away from things that are distracting me. Lord, would you just draw me away so that I can spend more time with you and be alone with you and grow and develop and further my relationship with you? That heart there is very beautiful that she expresses. Now, at this point, the daughters of Jerusalem, again, these other, the virgins of Israel, the ladies, they chime in and we will run after you. And then the Shulamite then speaks again, the king has brought me into his chambers. Now here it seems to describe being brought in a sense back perhaps to the palace chambers, not the bed chambers here. Don't let your mind go there instantaneously. He's brought me into his chambers. The idea is he brings her perhaps back and lets her realize and recognize what his palace is like. And all of a sudden she realizes, whoa, <laughs> I thought you were impressive, <laughs> but I had no idea all of this was involved. And so now she's brought back and begins to start to recognize as she sees his chambers, all of what he has available for her if this becomes her future. You know, even as you and I, the Bible tells us of Jesus, our king and our groom, that he's gone to prepare a place for us. And if he's preparing a place for us, one day he's going to bring us to where he's at. And we're going to see some pretty incredible chambers, the heavenly realm, the glory of the kingdom of God that one day we're going to get a chance to experience through our marriage relationship with the Lord Jesus. The daughters of Jerusalem chime in and then say, regarding this relationship, they see budding between King Solomon and the Shulamite gal, we will be glad and rejoice in you. So the idea is that they're happy, they're celebrating. They see this love relationship happening between these two, and there's almost a sense of joyful condonement of it. And I think this is a beautiful thing. I think there's something very valuable and healthy that when a relationship begins to bud and blossom, the preferable option would be that you have people celebrating with you and saying, hey, we're happy for you. This, this is awesome. We see what, and this is a beautiful thing. And, and kind of in a sense, putting their yes and amen upon the love relationship rather than seeing the opposite where everybody is going, what in the world are you doing, bro? Are you out of your mind, girl? What, what are you thinking pursuing a relationship with that guy? Here you find the daughters of Jerusalem watching what's going on say, hey, we're glad for you. We're rejoicing with you. This is, this is great. And again, I, I think when love happens properly, 
That should be the thing. We should see that kind of confirming voice of others celebrating with us. It's a great encouragement, perhaps, that the hand of the Lord is behind what's happening. And we will remember your love more than wine. Again, the imagery there, this, the celebration of the cheerfulness of their love. The Shulamite gal then speaks once again, saying, and rightly do they love you. In other words, she's saying, because you are such an awesome man, I can see why all the daughters of Jerusalem all wish that they could have relationship with you. Again, she's speaking respectfully of him and, and saying, man, considering who you are, I, I totally understand why any gal would want to be together with you. And then verse 5, she begins to speak and express, it seems, some of her own insecurities. She says, I am dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar. Now, the tents of Kedar, understand what she means there poetically, the tents of Kedar were basically, uh, the, the exterior of them anyway, were typically from dark goat skins, usually black hair uh, of goat skins. So she's drawing... Uh, attention to the fact that her skin is very, very darkened, is what she's describing here. Like the curtains of Solomon, look what she says, verse 6, do not look upon me because I am dark. The idea is her, her skin was very darkened by the sunlight and weathered, kind of leathery. That's kind of what she's trying to draw attention to here. Because the sun has tanned me. My mother's sons were angry with me. Great group of brothers. So they made me the keeper of the vineyards. In other words, they gave me all the outside work. They stuck me out in the sun, my mean older brothers. But my own vineyard, referring to her own physical frame, her own body, she says, I've not kept. I haven't been able to maintain myself because I've been outside working in the hot mid-eastern sun, long hours being scorched by the sun, and my skin has gotten you know, leathery and, and dark or whatever. And this was making her feel very insecure about herself. She's struggling with insecurity in her appearance. And understand, as this is going on, you may say, well, what's the big deal? I mean, you're tan. Isn't that the ideal thing? But again, in that culture, that was the exact opposite. In our culture today, we pay money. Well, some of you do. I don't. You pay money to go lay in a machine to get a tan, right? So that's in our culture, that's the ideal thing. If you've got a nice tan and a nice glow, that's considered attractive. In the early Hebrew culture, it was the exact opposite. Those who were very pale-skinned pale were those who were indicating, hey, we're not, in a sense, labor-class people who have to work outside in the hot sun. We dwell in the luxurious palaces where we're out of the sun. We are in the shade eating grapes and bonbons all day long. And we're upper class. All the real dark tan skinned people who got leathery skin, they're all the working class people out there. And so that was understood. So she here, keep in mind, she's recognizing this is King Solomon. And I'm basically a country girl from Lebanon. And on top of that, my brothers have made me work out in the hot sun. And she's like, oh my goodness, I just, I am so unworthy of you. And she feels insecure. And she feels insecure about her appearance, and she's nervous and kind of awkward and apprehensive about the way that she appears. And look, I can tell you something, free advice for you gentlemen here, this is a very common struggle with ladies, is oftentimes ladies will struggle with insecurity regarding their own appearance. 
and they will struggle with their beauty physically in comparison to other people or perhaps again if things have affected the way that they look physically in her case it was you know having been scorched by the sun in her skin but it could be anything and it is a common thing for a lady to struggle with that type of insecurity regarding her beauty and her outward appearance especially in regards to, oh, but there you, you've been around all these palace girls who are so beautiful, and, and, and here I am, an outside common laborer who've worked in the sun all day. And look, I bring this to your attention to say this. A wise man understands that that may be a common tendency in your wife to wrestle with insecurity, so anything that you can do verbally and in loving affirmation to help reverse that process and make her feel secure and allow her to know that you see her as beautiful and that there is no flaws that you are concerned about in her life, you are going to do something very valuable for your relationship. To recognize that that may be a common struggle, but anything that you can do to help is incredibly wise. So here she's, she's kind of struggling with that insecurity. She then says, verse 7, tell me, O you whom I love, where you feed your flock, where you make it rest at noon. For why should I be as one who veils herself? Typically, those who would veil themselves were either, you know, A, prostitutes, or those who were mourning, she didn't want to be perceived as either, by the flocks of your companions. So again, what is she saying? She's saying, I want to be with you. So you, can you tell me where you're going to be? Tell me where you work at, she says. Tell me where you're going to be. I want to spend time with you. And again, as love buds and develops, this is a common thing. She says, I want to be together with you. I want to be in your presence. Again, that's a very common indicator when love is beginning to happen is two people want to spend time together. If you're in a relationship with someone and you don't want to spend time with them constantly, I would highly recommend do not marry them. And I've seen this before in relationships. People act like it's a burden to spend time with someone. Look, if you don't enjoy and want to spend constant time with that person, you may want to reevaluate if that's your life companion because you're going to spend a lot of time with them. <laughs> you're going to be with them all the time. It should be that you want to be with them constantly, that you find yourself every waking moment having a longing and a desire to want to be together with them. That's what she's expressing here. She doesn't want to be detached from him. Where can I find you? Where do you feed your flocks? Where can I locate you? I just want to be together with you. He then answers, verse 8, if you do not know, now watch his language here, guys. If you do not know, O fairest among women. Fairest, the idea, the language, the Hebrew, most beautiful. You are the fairest of them all, right? You're the most beautiful of them all. What was she just struggling with? Insecurity. What's the first words out of his mouth? You're the most beautiful woman I know. You are the fairest among all in the land of Israel. He says to her, I, I, I think you're absolutely beautiful. You're the fairest among all women. And he says, follow in the footsteps of the flock and feed your little goats beside the shepherd's tents. He says, I have compared you, my love, again, he's using affectionate terms, to my filly, now, now, again, follow the, it's Hebrew language here. I, I don't recommend these kind of compliments, guys, just as an FYI. I've compared you to my filly among the Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments and your neck with chains of gold. So what he's doing here is he's commending her beauty. 
He's using his words verbally to praise her, to speak complimentary things, to express his attraction towards her, to, to make her feel that she's beautiful, to build her up in her spirit in that way, to eradicate her feminine insecurity. She's feeling uncomfortable about herself in some ways. And he says to her there, look, if you want to find me, the first thing he says is follow in the footsteps of the flock. Now, again, I, I like that because if I can draw an analogy again from the aspect of Jesus, that's what we need to do if we want to find out where to find the Lord and spend time with the Lord. Jesus would say, here's where I am. I'm together with my flock. Do you want to spend time with me? Do you want to find me? I'll be together with the flock. And again, does it matter how unworthy and insecure we feel about ourselves? Do you remember what the Shulamite was just struggling with? What was it? Oh, I'm so ugly. I'm so gross. I'm so, oh, I'm so embarrassed. Don't look upon me. I'm just so ugly. Is it not true that sometimes we feel that way about ourselves because of our sins and our struggles and we almost feel insecure around the Lord? And we almost feel so unworthy because of our own sinfulness. And like her, we struggle with insecurity. And Jesus says, look, I love you. And, and, and you can come spend time with me whenever you want. I don't care what you think about yourself. I know what I think about you. And Jesus says, you'll find me among my flock. Now, when in verse 9 he says, I've compared you, my love, to my filly among the chariots of Pharaoh... What he's describing there, the filly was a reference to the mare or the, or the female horse. Typically, we know in that day that the horses that pulled the, the pharaoh's chariots were usually always stallions. So what he's saying poetically to her is, is he's saying, you are basically like that one beautiful mare, that one female horse who basically goes strolling among the stables where all of the stallions are. And they all go, there's a mare. And they're all distracted because all the stallions are, are, are overwhelmed by this one beautiful mare that goes by. And so what he's saying is, is, look, you're so beautiful, I don't know how every single guy that's a stallion is not distracted by you. I'm sure distracted by you, he's saying. You rev my engine and all the stallions are probably longing and wanting to be with you. And now he's basically, again, just trying to affirm her to make her feel very, very beautiful. He's describing the loveliness of the ornaments upon her. And then verse 11, the daughters of Jerusalem chime in again, we will make you ornaments of gold with studs of silver. Now, again, those were typically jewelry pieces that were put on a bride when she went into the marriage ceremony process. So perhaps what you kind of have here, now here's the, the outside party chiming in and they say, hey, we're gonna start making you some bridal ornaments. What are they saying? We're looking at that relationship the two of you are having there and we see wedding bells in the future. So we'll start making you some bridal ornaments now because they, it's almost as if we're starting to see the life compatibility of these two in their courtship saying, hey, we can see what's going on here. We can see that you two are probably going to become husband and wife, so we're going to start making the wedding ornaments now because we can hear the wedding bells. Verse 12, while the king is at his table, my spikenard sends forth its fragrance. So again, this is the Shulamite. She's speaking. A bundle of myrrh is my beloved to me that lies all night between my breasts. 
My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. Now, again, poetic language here. What she's describing here is this beautiful fragrance that would come forth from her life and her connection now to her beloved in this relationship. She's equating the two. Oftentimes in that day, when women would sleep, they would tie together a bundle of myrrh or fragrances around their neck, and they would sleep with that under their garment so that the next day when they woke up, as they went out, typically it would radiate from them like a fragrance. So it would offset any bodily odors, and it would make them be a very pleasant individual because they would radiate from that fragrant myrrh that was lying between their breasts as it would radiate off of them and give a beautiful fragrance. So again, what in a sense she's saying poetically, even as that fragrance would enhance her life, she's basically saying of him that her relationship with him, she's saying, my relationship with you is just like that. She says, my relationship with you is enhancing my life. It's not making my life worse. It's not making my life start to stink. It's actually my connection to you. It's kind of just like that fragrant myrrh that I wear, and the next day it makes me a better person when I go out. She's saying, my connection to you is making my life better. It's enhancing me as a lady. It's enhancing me as a person. And look, can I say, that should be what's transpiring in a good, healthy courtship relationship. We're basically, particularly, especially for a single lady, she should be able to say, my relationship with you as a lady is making me a better woman. It's enhancing my life. It's not dragging down my life. It's not adding an odor and a stink to my life. It's basically making me become a more beautiful woman. And again, as we look at this, it reminds us as well, too, of exactly what happens, how Jesus enhances our life. Is that not true? How relationship with Jesus and having Jesus, in a sense, within our heart, not just over our heart, but having Jesus in our heart causes the fragrance of Christ to disperse from us and makes us a better person as we live out our existence. Verse 15, he then speaks up once again, saying, Behold, you are fair, my love. Again, you're beautiful, he says. Behold, you are fair, beautiful, and you have dove's eyes. Doves were known to mate for life and to be very faithful birds. So he's not just saying you, you have beautiful eyes, but he's saying, I see loyalty in your eyes. Again, I like that. that, that he looked into her eyes and he saw things about her character. And one of the things he saw about her is, I can tell you're a loyal woman. I can tell you're a faithful woman. And, and I want to be with you because of that. And that attracted him to her. You know, one of my little pet names for my own wife is Penelope. I've always called her that on top of other names. But one of the reasons I started utilizing that is because when you look up that term, it means my devoted one. And that's what I found in my relationship with her, that she was incredibly devoted to me. And I found that very beautiful and very attractive. And here he sees not only her physical beauty, but again, her inward beauty, that she's a committed, loyal, devoted woman. And he says, yo, you have dove's eyes. You're so beautiful. Now, as he praises her and says to her, you're beautiful, she then reciprocates back to him, behold, you are handsome, my beloved. So again, he praises her with compliments. Notice, ladies, gentlemen appreciate comments as well. She says to him, and you are handsome. Yes, pleasant. 
Also, our bed is green, and the beams of our houses are cedar, and our rafters of fir. Now, again, it seems that what's being described there is as they would take these walks, spending time together. The, 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 the green bed would describe the grass. So it's kind of a picture here of walking out in the forest with the cedar trees. They're taking strolls to the forest here. Just two couples, or a couple, two people in love, holding hands, you know, walking through the forest here, enjoying time together. She says, verse 1 of chapter 2, and I am the rose of Sharon. Notice, again, biblically, there are some songs that, that refer to Jesus as the rose of Sharon. Uh, she, not the groom here, she's the one saying, I'm the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. And understand, in that day, roses and lilies in the area of Sharon and in the valleys, they were incredibly common. So what she's saying, in essence, is, I'm so common. I'm just such a common, average person. And then he responds, again, she's trying to, what's she doing? She's kind of putting herself down again, right? This is her, her insecurity struggle. She's putting herself down. And what does a wise man do? He, he praises her. And he uses his words, one of the greatest tools in romantic love, gentlemen. He says, you think you're a lily? He says, baby, you're like a lily among the thorns. Even if you were a lily, you're the one lily among all the rotten, nasty thorns out there. I will take a lily any day if you're the lily. And again, he's just using his words to build her up. So is my love, calling her my love, among the daughters. She then says, like an apple tree among the trees of the woods, so is my beloved among the sons, that is among the young men. I sat down in his shade with great delight and his fruit was sweet to my taste. So she's beginning to, again, speak complimentary things towards him here. She's using, again, poetic language. Apple trees in the woods were very rare. They weren't a common thing. So again, she's kind of saying, you're, you're, you're very rare. You're a unique man. You're a rare find. And she was glad to find that. And you know what? Again, that, that's what we should want to be, gentlemen. We should want to live in a way whereby when our you know, future spouse or our wife would find us if you're a single man where she would recognize, you know what, you offer something rare that I haven't found in other young men out there. I haven't found this in other men out there in the, you know, sphere of men. You, you are a rare find, and that was something that appealed to her. She uses this language to call him like an apple tree among all the trees. Of the, that is, he stood out. He stood out to her, and it appealed to her. She says, so is my beloved among the young men, and I sat under the shade of his life with great delight. Again, think of what shade does. When a tree provides shade, to go under the shade, what does it do? You come out from under the heat and the brunt of the sun. So when you enter into the shade or something provides shade, what it basically does is by providing shade is it basically shields us and it makes life more easy and it makes life easier to endure by being in the shade. So basically what she's saying is because of who you are and how you act and how you treat me as a man, she says, I thoroughly enjoy being under the shade of your life because she says, you make my life easier. You make my life easier to endure and your shade makes my life better. And again, what a beautiful thing to see this gentlemanly type, you know, character in this man that she would say, being in a relationship with you hasn't made my life harder. 
it's made my life actually much lighter and easier. It's like entering under a nice cool shade. And I get to enjoy your protection and your covering over my life and how you shade me and shield me from hardships. And again, this, this beautiful thing that he brought to the table as a man in the courtship that appealed to her. And she says, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. In other words, another way of saying, and he's just such a sweet man. Just such a sweet man, like sweet fruit to his taste. Again, as we think of Jesus in the midst of all these things, Jesus certainly shields us and makes our life easier to endure. And it's the sweetness of Jesus and the fruit of the Spirit that we get to partake of, again, being his bride and being in a relationship with him. Verse 4, she says, And he brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. So she describes he brought me to the banqueting house. The picture's there. He was unashamed of her. He was proud of her. He brings her to the banqueting house. She's insecure. He's thinking the exact opposite. I am as proud as punch to have you by my side. And he publicly is proud of her. He wants to display her to everyone there at the banqueting house. And she says, and his banner over me was love. And again, a, a banner describes something that was a public display. So again, he, he's publicly displaying his love for her. He's not ashamed of his love. He's not embarrassed of his love. Any wise man, again, you, you, some of those men want to try and act so macho and cool and, and not seem soft and romantic. <laughs> You're dumb, man. Public display of love. You should be praising her and be romantic with her. Who cares what people think about you? I don't care what you think about me. I care what my wife thinks about me. That's who I live with. So publicly... We should continue to be romantic and sweet and gentle. Again, that, that, he just says, I'm not, a, uh, I'm not ashamed. She says, his banner over me was love. He's always showing his love to me publicly. Sustain me. <laughs> Watch it, her response, right? He's showing all this public love and affection. She now says, sustain me with cakes and raisins. These are things that would have a lot of sugar to kind of wake you up. Refresh me with apples, for I am lovesick. What's she saying? She's describing, I'm about to faint. Oh, Why? Because he was so loving and so sweet and so romantic. She says, I'm about to pass out. I'm lovesick. I'm about to faint from this guy's romantic love and wonderful treatment. Please, she said, revive me. Get, get the raisins. Get the apples. This guy's making me pass out. I'm going to faint. He's such a romantic. It almost seems, again, as she's now... In the process of fainting or passing out, that's kind of the picture there. She's lovesick, ready to, ready to faint. Now, I think verse 6 is a reference to her kind of like in this loving, passionate daydream, pondering the wedding celebration. Because then verse 6 says, his left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. I almost picture her saying, man, I am fainting from love and I can't wait <laughs> to that wedding night. When he puts one hand under my head and the other hand wraps around me to embrace me, again, she's almost kind of, you know, visualizing with great excitement finally being able to be together with him. But as she refers to that physical intimacy, look at her counsel then to all the other ladies around her. She says, and I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the does of the field, do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. So she makes a reference to romantic love, to intimacy, to sexual expression, which she's longing for at the right time and in the future. 
And then she very quickly offers a word of counsel to the other ladies, to the other virgins, her friends around her. And she says, do not stir up, however, or awaken love until it pleases. The idea there, the language is, don't stir it up or awaken it before the proper time. Don't force it. Don't prematurely enter into it. Don't make the mistake of ruining a relationship by putting the physical intimacy before the marital covenant and commitment. She's saying, in love generally, even with romantic experience, she's saying, this has been a wonderful thing, but she's reminding the other virgins and young single women around her, don't try and stir it up or awaken it through your own efforts. Let God give birth to it. In the right season, let God blossom it, let God bring it to pass. Again, what was this Shulamite woman doing? Was she out on the hunt? Was she on, you know, Hebrew hotties chat line or whatever? You know, that's not what she was doing. She was out working in the fields, occupying herself, being who she was. And lo and behold, here comes King Solomon. Here comes her stallion. Comes out, is in his common clothes, and all of a sudden she realizes that she's having this chemistry and connection with this really incredible man that she has this, you know, bond that's developing with, and she has no idea on top of it, this is the king of Israel? Are you kidding me? I, I, I thought it was, and, and, and it's actually that much better? And see, look, I, I tell you folks, Jesus said when he did his greatest miracle, or they said of Jesus, when he changed the water to wine, remember they said he saved the best for last. And that's always the way that the Lord works. And so many times the dynamic in single relationships is, is as people go through a stage of singleness before they're married and they find their proper life partner the way God intends them to, they tend to practice. And it's all the worse if they make the mistake of recreational dating. That's a really bad idea. I don't recommend and what they realize as they attempt this and they try that and they make some mistakes and they, is they realize eventually when they stop stirring it up and they're not trying to awaken it and make it happen on their own, that God brings that person into their life at the right way, at the right time, with hardly any effort whatsoever. And then just like this woman, they go, wow. I can't believe how wonderful this is. I couldn't have planned this better myself. But again, that's God's design. And would to God that we would learn to trust his design and that we would also encourage those around us, singles and younger people, to trust God's design and to let them experience God's best rather than having all the pain and the heartache. You know, it's gonna be interesting. That is one of the phrases there that's the repeated refrain throughout this whole book. It's beautiful, it's wonderful, it's fantastic, but don't stir it up too soon. Don't stir it up yourself. Let God do it in God's way and in God's time. Let's stand together.